As Pilate was presiding over the tribunal, his wife sent him an urgent message. Don't harm that holy man, for I have suffered a horrible nightmare last night about him. Meanwhile, the chief priest and the religious leaders were inciting the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be freed and to have Jesus killed. So Pilate asked them again, which of these two men would you like me to release for you? They shouted, Barabbas! Pilate asked them, then what would you have me to do with Jesus, who is called the Anointed One? They all shouted back, crucify him! Why? Pilate asked. What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting out, crucify him! When Pilate realized that a riot was about to break out and that it was useless to try to reason with the crowd, he sent for a basin of water. After washing his hands in front of the people, he said, I am innocent of the blood of this righteous man. The responsibility for his death is now yours. And the crowd replied, let his blood be on us and on our children. So he released Barabbas to the people. He ordered that Jesus be beaten with a whip made of leather straps embedded with metal and afterward be crucified.
stage. Here's a scene. Now give us something to He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down and we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. He was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave, but why? Why did it have to be like this, so brutal and violent? Why? I know we know the story and the imagery. We know the characters and probably even know the outcome. We sit in a moment like this and are confronted to the truth, this truth, Jesus had to die. It had to happen. And it had to happen just like this. Mocked, betrayed, tortured, hanging. But to truly understand why, we have to go back to the very beginning, all the way back to the start of humanity. God spends time crafting every little detail of the cosmos, the stars and galaxies, moons and planets, and even takes time to craft this planet we call home. He gave it water and land. He formed animals and flowers. Then God gathered piles of earth and formed it into man and took his own very breath and breathed life into man. The first man, Adam. Then God took a part of Adam and fashioned the first woman, Eve. And there was perfection, harmony between earth and sky, between animals and humanity, and complete connection between creator and creation. God takes these two brand new people and places them in a perfect garden filled with everything they could ever want or need. And Adam and Eve were perfect, surrounded by perfection and connected to perfection. There was only one small detail. There was this one tree in the garden, one no, in a whole world full of yes. One tree was off limits. One piece of fruit 
that was forbidden. Because love doesn't control, love allows choice. And for a while, that was fine. Until a serpent whispered to Eve one question that would put into jeopardy this entire connection between creator and creation. Maybe God is hiding something from you. Maybe this one thing you can't have is the one thing you desperately need. Maybe you can be like God. So, Eve, the choice is yours. Is it true that it hangs on a single tape? With the times when I throw everything
And so Adam and Eve, they rebel against the good God who created them. They eat of the forbidden fruit, and they stand there naked, sinful, and ashamed. They run away from the very God that they used to walk with in the garden. And right there, their relationship is broken. At that moment, right then, was the moment where distance came between the creator and creation. See, God sees them. He sees them try to go cover themselves with hastily woven branch, branches and leaves to cover their sin. But what Adam and Eve don't really recognize is that the only thing that can cover sin is blood. Because God is holy, because he's perfect, and sin cannot live around him, darkness cannot last around him, what he knows is that sin must be paid for. The life is in the blood. We've heard it before. So something must bleed for sin. Something must die to pay for this sin. And this is the moment where we actually get to see who God is. See, we're about two and a half chapters into the Bible, but we don't really know who he is yet. We don't know his MO. We don't know how he's going to operate. Will he take Adam and Eve and will he punish them? Will he banish them? Will he throw them away because of their rebellion? Will he kill them? Will he say, okay, now we have to wipe you away and start over again? Hmm. But in this garden that has never seen or known death, God instead takes an animal and he kills it and he covers Adam and Eve with its skin. Because the only thing that can cover sin is blood. And here God shows us that his love for humanity is so great that he is willing to kill something innocent in order to cover something guilty. Guilty. See, but the spiral of sin, it already began. And we see very quickly that the further away from the garden humanity gets, things start to take a downturn. Murder, rape, incest, wars, famine, all these things start to prevail in the earth. But watch this. God always had a plan. He always had a plan A, not a plan B. And in that plan, we see the foreshadowing and understand that at the first rebellion, blood covers sin. See, later in Genesis 22, we see the story about a man named Abraham who will be called the father of many nations. This man, him and his wife Sarah, they prayed for a long time for a son, and his name was Isaac when he was born. And what's so important about this story is that this story shows us that Abraham was asked by God to sacrifice his only son. This son that they prayed for, this promised son that in their old age they were able to conceive. And when God calls Abraham to sacrifice this son, this only son, 
we understand that right when he was getting ready to kill his son Isaac, the Lord shouted out to Abraham, hold up! Don't do it! Because it was only a test. God never intended for Abraham to kill Isaac. Because at the very last minute, he revealed a ram caught in a thicket. And right there, what we see is that Abraham is able to yell out and call out the name that we call God, Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord sees for his people and he provides. Jehovah Jireh, he sees what we need and he never lets us go without. And right there, he provides a sacrifice because the only thing that can cover sin is what? Blood. We see again in Exodus 12 as God sends the angel of death to punish the Egyptians as they have been enslaving the Hebrew people. See, they were given the mandate and God tells them to sacrifice a spotless lamb and to cover their doorpost to make sure that when the deaf angel came, that the deaf angel would see the blood of the spotless lamb and he would pass over their homes. Why? Because blood covers sin. See, the temple sacrifice system, it was all set up by then. And most often, people would sacrifice a spotless, pure lamb. And they would sacrifice this lamb. Why? Because blood covers sin. And this is how they stayed in some semblance or some form of relationship with God. But what would happen too often is they would depend on these rituals. And these rituals too often fell on deaf ears and they became what we even call today religion instead of relationship. Until finally, the time had come for that Jehovah Jireh to provide for the needs of his people. Knowing that we could never reach up high enough to touch him again, God reached down low to pull us back up to him. God put skin on and he walks around with people. Jesus in the form of man, God in the form of man, he begins his ministry on earth and from there signs. Wonders and miracles start to take place wherever he goes. But let me tell you something. Jesus' purpose was never to come on earth and conquer Rome. It wasn't even to feed the hungry. It wasn't even to operate in many miracles. The secret is out. But he really came to deal with our sin debt and to connect us back with the Father. But watch this, the only thing that can cover sin is blood. When John the Baptist, he first saw Jesus come on the scene, he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he has come. Here's Jesus, completely blameless, completely clean, the only one ever without sin. 
Could it be that the lamb who died in Isaac's place, the spotless lambs that people sacrificed to keep these rituals, all these lambs that were even used to pass over the homes of the people, and all these pure lambs that died in the temples over the years, could it be that they were actually just creating a foreshadowing for what is to come right now? For this sinless, 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 sinless Lamb of God. But surely, God wouldn't love the world that much, would he? To give his only son, his, his only son, that price is way too high. We need to cut it. We're too far gone. Humanity isn't worth it. Our sins, I'm going to talk for me, my sins are too great. And hours before his arrest and trial, Jesus kneels down to pray in a garden called Gethsemane. It's filled with ancient olive trees. And right there in that moment, Jesus is there with his closest friends. And his closest friends in the world, they're snoozing while Jesus is contemplating what he will be losing because of this sacrifice that he must make for the people. But here we are again in the garden. The last time we found ourselves in the garden, Man turned his back on God. The last time we found ourselves in the garden, there was fellowship that was lost because of something we wanted to do. But could it be in this garden that a different decision could be made? Could it be that we can make another choice? Knowing what's about to happen, the crushing weight of the sins of the world were beginning to rest on Jesus. And Jesus lifts his head to heaven. And he asks his father, Father, is there another way? Like you said, we'd be alone, sitting here feeling what's to come, just thinking about the cross. Oh, my body hurts already. I feel crushed by the weight of it. Father, I wish there was another way, another way that we could... Rescue your people. I love them. All of them. And in a heartbeat, I would give my life for theirs. But what if this body can't handle the stress? What if I'm too weak to carry this burden? I've seen men 
break completely on the cross. This cross. The brutality of it burns in my mind. Is there another way? Have we tried everything? Lord, are you sure? Are you completely sure this will work? Will they accept my sacrifice? The ones closest to me don't even understand what's happening here. Now, what about this new movement? Okay, are they going to stick through as things fall apart? your will, Father. I know this is why you sent me. My broken bones break for them, all of them. My blood poured out as a final sacrifice to restore them and to wash them clean. Just help them understand. Remind them that I have to die so that they can live. Help them understand that we choose to restore this complete connection between creator and creation. That they may be with you the way that I am. They crave for that connection again, Lord. And as for me, I just ask that you give me the strength for the struggle that's ahead of me. I just ask that you pour out all the love that you have for your people every last drop. This decision, this choice that you've given me choose you, Father. I choose your will and not my will. Not my own will. I choose to offer my life as a sacrifice to your people. The only thing that can cover sin is blood. And Jesus is already bleeding. And as he looks ahead to the sins of the world that he's about to take on, the stress is so great that he starts to sweat drops of blood. He goes to wake up his friends and as he does, torches are seen in the distance. It's a group of Roman soldiers coming to take him away, led by one of his own friends, Judas. His own friend. 
And Jesus is arrested. He's taken away for a mock trial just so they can say they gave him just due. And the Savior of the world is charged with blasphemy and labeled a political threat to Rome. See, Jesus is messing with the status quo. Jesus is coming messing with the norm. And you know, you can't have anybody disrupting the norm. You need to stay in line and go along to get along. So in that moment, he is mocked and beaten. He is spit on and whipped. They ripped out his beard with their bare hands. They wrapped him in a dirty piece of cloth to symbolize mockingly a king's robe. They beat a thrown together crown into his head, into his skin, into his skull. And they whipped him 39 times until you can see the bones coming from his back. And that same crowd that just a few days before welcomed Jesus singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means Savior, now stands screaming, crucify him. Crucify him? What has he done? What did he do to deserve this type of beating? And just to drive the point home in case we missed it, the crowd isn't some mysterious group of people who lived thousands and thousands of years ago. This crowd is me. This crowd is you. This crowd is us, all of us. And Jesus came to offer life, and in turn, what we do is we sentence him to die. Yes, we sentence him to die. Because Jesus messes with the status quo. Jesus rocks the boat. See, when God comes to town, things have to change. They can't remain the same in his presence. But if we're honest, if we're for real, for real, we like things just the way they are. We like eating from the fruit of the tree of our own comfort and going our own way. So we yell out, crucify him, crucify him. Get rid of the one who makes us look at ourselves and feel guilty. And if it wasn't bad enough, right there in that moment, there was a murderer named Barabbas on trial for to be executed. And the question was asked right there, who do you want to release right now, Jesus or this murderer Barabbas? Who should go free? What did the people say? They said, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. And at the last moment, just like we look back, like Isaac's freedom was given at the last moment, 
because of that ram caught in the thicket. Barabbas goes free and Jesus is the one crucified. See, the thing is, we have this tendency to kind of romanticize the cross. The movies we watch, the pictures we see, we see these paintings and TV shows and we see the good looking Jesus, the bronzy Jesus, the politically correct Jesus with a little blood on him on a great big hill with a 10 foot tall cross with a sunset in the background. Y'all know the pictures I'm talking about. But I want to let you know, I don't know if that makes us feel good or something. Because maybe we say if the scenery was nice, at least that was a fitting place for God to die. But it wasn't picturesque. It, it wasn't elegant. Jesus wasn't crucified on a hill overlooking all the people with this giant cross. They didn't give him that honor to say look up at him and give him reverence. Because if we read our Bibles for real and we slow down, Scripture does not say that Jesus was crucified on Golgotha. It says that Jesus was crucified at Golgotha. And what this means is that when we look at this, crucifixion was created with the sole intent to inflict maximum pain while at the same time inflicting maximum humiliation. See, crosses at the time, they weren't these nice carving things. They were literally most of the time just a beam of wood that somebody would take and nail to a random tree on the road, on the side of the road at Jerusalem. And what they would do, the Romans wanted as many people that would pass by on their way to doing their chores, on their way to operating their daily duties. They wanted as many people, men, boys, young and old, to walk by and see these executions. Why? To serve as a reminder, just in case you were gonna jump bad, just in case you wanted to change the system, just in case you wanted to be a revolutionary. This was a reminder, you better stay in line. You better stay in line or you'll end up like one of these. See, let me show you something. Crosses were actually put at eye level so that the ones dying would be that much more humiliated. And to make things worse, there was no little cloth covering your most private parts. We romanticized this thing. These people, they hung naked, exposed, humiliated, and embarrassed, awaiting your death for all the world to see. And Jesus was no exception. And you didn't die because of the nails. You suffocated to death. You had to breathe in and work to breathe to keep yourself up on that cross. The nails were simply there to make sure you couldn't get away. It was a slow, excruciating death that was sometimes take days. See, we think he just got up there and it was just all over in an instant. It could take days for you to die like that. So here's Jesus, God in the flesh, the Savior 
of the world, abandoned by his friends, mocked by his enemy, saying, look at him, savior of the world. Look at him, king of the Jews, pinned by nails to a tree, naked, bloody, bruised, eye level, so that even if people wanted to, they could slap him if they wanted, spit in his face if they wanted. Dying on the side of the street with common criminals. Suffocating. Gasping for air. But what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Because when we understand the why behind this moment, we can see God in this moment. When we really understand the brutality on the cross, we can see the beauty in the cross. The beauty, yes, the beauty. This was all a part of God's plan. The plan to restore creation back to the creator. God stood in front of the first Adam to make the first sacrifice. And now he stands in front of all of us to become the last sacrifice. But how is this beautiful? Because the only thing that can cover sin is blood. It's beautiful because Jesus bled for you. He bled for me. He bled for us, the crowd. And even while we were still his enemies, he died for us. He died in our place. Jesus said so. His body broken for you. His blood poured out for you. But watch this. The cross, it wasn't an injustice towards a victim. No, no, no. The cross was the passion of a God who was so tired of distance between man and him that he would put on skin and bone so that he can walk with humanity once again. No more distance, no more space. You don't have to do a ritual and actually sacrifice a lamb anymore. He walked with us, he lived with us, he spoke with us. And he climbed on this cross to become the last sacrifice for us. He was rejected so that you can be accepted. He was despised so that you can be adored. He suffered so that you can be healed. He was pierced so that you can be made whole. Somebody needs to understand what he did. He was crushed so that you can be restored. 
He was humiliated so that you can be honored. He was punished so that you can know peace. He was oppressed so that you could be free. He was found guilty so that you and you and you and you could be found innocent. He died so that you could live. Jesus made sure that there would never have to be another sacrifice because he was the final sacrifice. And where every other sacrifice covered our sin, where every other sacrifice just kind of moved sin and hide it for a little while, Jesus' blood abolished sin. He destroyed sin. He separated from our sins as far as from the east is from the west. And hear this. Our sin is no longer covered. Our sin is gone. Our sin is gone. And when we accept his sacrifice, when we accept that the blood of Jesus stands in our place, he took what was due to us that we earned and that we deserve. And when we look back on the brutality of this moment, we can see the beauty in it. We can remember his sacrifice as we look at him. We can celebrate all that he has done.
On the cross, Jesus proclaims to all those looking at him that it is finished. 
It is finished. It is finished. The final sacrifice has been paid. And he was buried in a tomb in a garden on that Good Friday. But that is not the end of the story. I have good news for you. Somebody needs to say, thank God for Sunday. Come on, you need to say it one more time. Thank God for Sunday. Like the old church used to say, early on Sunday morning. Come on, somebody, early on Sunday morning. The stone is rolled away, and he got up. I don't think y'all heard me. He got up. He got up, and breath enters into his body. He walks out of that grave victorious, and Jesus defeats death. And in the middle of a grave in a garden, he sets all that was broken straight. And he connected creation back to its creator. What we once had, that intimate relationship with God, that fellowship with God, no distance between him and I, it was now restored. So the good news is we don't need a ritual anymore. We don't need sacrifices anymore. We just need Jesus. Can I say it one more time for this side of the room? We just need Jesus. So here's what we have to understand. This is our story. In the Garden of Eden, we all died. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus chose to die so that we could live. And in the garden where he was buried, Jesus walked out of his grave so that we could leave our graves behind too. And Jesus says in John 12, 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, he's not talking about on a 10-foot pole. He's talking about when I am preached, when I am proclaimed, when I am lived by how you operate, when people can see you and see me, I will draw all men unto myself. And Jesus says that when he's lifted up on the cross, he will draw us to him. Because looking at Jesus changes you. You know what I'm talking about. When you get off on the exit off the highway and someone's standing there saying, I need money or I need food. If we're honest, sometimes we try not to even look at them. Because if we look at them, there will actually be a cause for a response that we have to do something with what we just saw. And we would rather act like we didn't see them. We would act, rather act like we're texting or act like we're doing something else instead of looking that person in the eye. Because then you have a responsibility. But if I look, I have to do something with what I saw. Good news. Today, you have looked and you have seen Jesus. So today, you have to do something with what you've seen. You have to make a choice. Do I continue with my life going business as usual? Even if I've given my life to Christ before, am I going to remain with this distance between me or am I going to draw myself to him? The question is, is Jesus drawing you? Is he drawing you closer? See, God has come to interrupt your regularly scheduled program today. 
And the question is, is he drawing you? And as we look at this, as we're in this supernatural moment with God, and if today God is drawing you, I don't want you to miss the moment. So if today you feel this drawing, you feel this pulling, and your heart is actually saying yes to Jesus, even before your words can say, your heart is filled with pride to say, I need Jesus. Don't walk away from this moment that can change your life. So this is what I want to do. I want us to bow our heads for a moment all over the room. And if you believe this, if you believe that Jesus, the Son of God, that he died on the cross for your sin as a payment and that he rose again, you will live forever and you can know God today. And if today you can say, I believe that I'm being drawn and you're saying, yes, I want to commit my life to Jesus. While every head is bowed, I just want you to lift your hand up in the air. I see hands all over the room. This second call for those who have been far from God. And you looked at Jesus today and said, there's been too much distance and I want to come closer. I want you to lift your hands to him. And as a family of believers, can we all lift our hands all over this room as a sign that we're saying we believe in Jesus. So I'm going to lead us in this prayer. And what's about to happen right now that this prayer is going to radically change your life. You're about to go from darkness to light, from death to life, from lost to being found, from being an orphan to being a child of God. And if you want this, I want you to repeat this prayer after me. Say, Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. You bled and died on the cross, not to cover over my sins, but to erase them. And you rose again so that I can be free from everything that has held me in chains. So today I repent. I turn from my sins in my way of life. And I turn to go in your way of life. I cling to you in faith. And Jesus Christ, you are my Lord and my Savior. And because of that, I am forgiven. I am free. I am new. And I will live forever. And I am a child of God. And I can know God. And I give Jesus all the glory. Amen. Amen. And amen. Somebody put your hands together. Come on, lift up a great God. Put your hands together as we celebrate what just happened. Come on, give him praise. Give him glory. He's worthy. If you just made that decision today, we're going to give you some next steps in a moment. But what we're going to do before we leave today, we're going to take just one more moment and worship God in the way that is worthy of his name. So if you would do me a favor, can you stand up all over the room? Stand up all over the room. Because I want to announce to you that Jesus is the one that takes what the enemy meant for evil and turns it for your good. 
He is the one who saves you. He is the one that creates beauty for the ashes that you had. He is the one that brings you from darkness to light. He's the one that breathes breath into your body and brings you to life again. He is the one that we know that there is nothing better than him. And he turns our graves into a garden. Give him praise. Come on, church. the world but it 